this is Anna East Eden. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond podcast with host Stephen Brittingham. Enjoy. Hi, Stephen. This is Emily Proctor calling you. Hi, Stephen. It's Melissa Anderson calling you. Mr. Brittingham, this is Bill Duke. How are you, sir? Stephen, this is Patrick Duffy. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond podcast. Your home for meaningful and in-depth interviews. For more guest and show news, please visit HollywoodBeyond.net. Hey, Supernatural fans. This is Carrie Gonzell inviting you to join me for Creation's Supernatural Convention in Arlington, Virginia, this coming August 12th through 14th. I will be there along with all of your favorite Supernatural stars. Join me for a free screening of Just My Imagination. I will be hosting along with the hilarious Nate Torrance, who plays Sully. There will be autographs, photo ops, a karaoke night, and so much more. Get your tickets at creationent.com. Don't miss out. Get yours today. Have a question or comment for Steven? You can send them anytime to the show's official email address, hollywoodandbeyondshow at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, once again, friends and listeners. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond podcast. I am your host, actor and writer, Stephen Brittingham. My guest today is the director and writer of Glass House, Kelsey Egan. Her captivating film revolves around a family who has been able to survive the shred, a toxin that erases memory, when a stranger enters into their tightly structured way of life and rituals, he threatens to shatter their glass house. Once upon a time, there was a girl. She came upon an enchanted castle made of glass. Only people who remembered their names could enter there. We gather in thanks for our sanctuary from the shred. In a world of madness, we have found order. What are you doing? You have welcomed a threat across our threshold. What is your name? I don't think I ever had one. You don't know this man, B. You can't trust so soon. You don't trust anything you can't put in your box. You never take your eyes off me, do you? Can't take your eyes off of a snake. Did someone tell you about us? I don't think so. We're not safe from the shred, even here. I know these rituals are important to your family. Ritual is our shield. Shred is taking them all. Kelsey is clearly a very talented artist and filmmaker. She is also an actress and has contributed to film and television projects behind the scenes in a wide variety of ways. Very impressive. 
I'm looking forward to discussing the making of her impressive full feature directorial debut, The Glass House. Kelsey, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. It's so nice to have you here today. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to speak with you and also learn more about the making of Glass House. Great. Well, it's exciting to have the opportunity to talk about it. Well, first, let me say congratulations on such a remarkable film achievement. I can't wait to learn more about the film. I am here in Cincinnati, Ohio, my hometown. Uh, you are from Wisconsin, and you moved to South Africa in 2007, I believe. Yeah. And is that where you are joining me from today? I am. I'm dialing in from Cape Town. <laughs> a little bit ways down the road, so to speak. Just a bit. Just a jump across the pond. And how are things on your end of the world? I think the fact that I chose to stay here and never made my way home is indicative of the fact that it's a, a pretty special place. Um, it definitely captured my heart. And when I came, I was so young and I was just so excited to experience another way of life and be a fish out of water and embrace all the challenges that that brought. Um, but I've learned a lot from living here in, in ways that I'm not sure I would have grown or been challenged in the same way. And while not all of those ways have been easy, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunities that's brought and hoping to have a, a better understanding or, or, you know, context for different perspectives. I was thinking that it had to uh, have been a place that you connected with on so many levels and, and that just uh, verified all of that. I did uh, read that you enjoyed horseback riding uh, back in Wisconsin while you were growing up. Is that something you still do to this day? It is. I need to give a <laughs> shout out to my riding trainer, Mary, who's still a, a dear friend. Um, but uh, no, I love, I, it is one of the things that keeps me sane. Um, and I'm lucky enough to actually live in a, a place in, just outside of the City Bowl of Cape Town. I always used to be a town girl. I always used to live in town in the City Bowl. And just last month, I moved out a bit farther from town to a an area called Nordhook and I can drive two minutes to the stable where my friend Nicole has some incredible show horses and we can just literally leave the livery yard uh trot out onto the wetlands and sort of gallop through the wetlands out onto the beach and there's a whole strip of white beach you can also gallop on it's uh it's a dream that sounds absolutely wonderful incredible uh well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I will share with you very briefly that uh, my, the first few years of, of, of my childhood, I actually lived on a farm in a place called Georgetown, Ohio, okay. kind of a small town. Yeah. And I had a pony named Gypsy <laughs> that only liked me, was friendly to everybody, but didn't like adults riding her or messing with her too much. I could literally sit under her and she would just stand there napping away. That's and I had so many adventures with Gypsy. I, 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 it's, it's very clever of the ponies. It's funny. They do. I feel they, they do know. Um, the difference between an adult and a kid and you can have a pony that will be a bit full of it with an adult because they they'll push it and with a kid they'll be an angel and you're like seriously no that's not always true you get the ponies that are completely full of it with everyone um but yes it's remarkable how they'll take care of of the youngins at times 
Well, I was already playing a lot of Westerns <laughs> back at that time. Also so uh, Gypsy made it uh, just more real and vivid for me. I think and, you did uh, better than me. I had like a, a horse made out of a barrel. <laughs> I, I was so excited to find like a, like my parents found a really old Western saddle for me. Like, I, I don't know, from some antique shop or something. And I, I'd saddle up that barrel that would be like my favorite thing to do. And then I'm like, maybe we gotta, you know, get this girl some riding lessons. <laughs> <laughs> well, you keep enjoying um, your your horse uh, time, and and that is just wonderful. I, I, before we dive into Glass House, which I can't wait, I'm just wondering when you think back to your younger years, were you a huge movie fan? Was there um, uh, filmmakers that you were already admiring or or noticing at that time or or how did your interest in artistic projects whether it be acting directing writing how did that all formulate for you uh, that's a great question um because i actually have to reflect on it and that journey because when i was in high school and even in college it never even occurred to me that going into film was an option i actually double majored in neuroscience and behavior and theater with a, a concentration in directing and I discovered film when I was cast as an actress in a friend's indie film shooting in Manhattan. And I just remember going on set for the first time and just being completely blown away and enthralled by the level of collaboration and cooperation across all departments, but also all of the tangible skills and artisans that have to come together, both technical and craft, um, to create any movie. And I, I, was, I was really, really impressed by that. And then I, and then I was hooked. But... Um, but earlier than that, you know, going back in time as a kid, I came from a long line of readers. Um, reading was really big in my family. Um, but I had a, a tradition with my father that we would always watch movies together. And he showed me, I would say, all of the greats in terms of classic sci-fi. And I grew up watching all of those films with him. So original Star Trek, original Star Wars. I think I watched original Star Wars like hundreds of times with him, um, King Kong, Rodan, um, all the Japanese horror, sci-fi films, creature films, um, you know, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to, there's just so many I could list. I don't want to waste time, <laughs> but, um, but I think he, and he also exposed me to science fiction literature and I just devoured like Robert, Robert Heinlein and Asimov and Octavia Butler. And I think I was at a very young age, it, just really hooked on science fiction because it was the work that sort of challenged my notions of how to live or why we live the way we do in our own reality and the other options that are available that may or may not be better and sort of, you know, contributed to encouraging me to interrogate why our world is the way it is. And that I think has very much influenced my own work and has always been something I'm very interested in, in terms of, you know, discussing, the choices that we make and how we choose to treat Earth and ourselves. What an influence uh, he was on you, and I really enjoyed listening to all of that. Thank you so much. I was raised by my grandparents, Kelsey, and my grandfather when I was very young. Going back to that farm in Georgetown, he used to watch a lot of Westerns and World War II movies on the weekends. This is like before cable, of course. Right. And that's how I discovered, for example, Robert Mitchum, 
John Wayne, Richard Widmark, Kirk Douglas. And uh, to this day, I still have an appreciation for classic Hollywood, and I give a lot of uh, that credit to him and his influence. Yeah, no, I I get you. What's your favorite John Wayne film? Oh, wow. That is a great question. Well, two things about that. It has been a while since I've actually viewed a lot of John's films. And I was thinking about that the other day, like, it has been way too long. So from that standpoint, I will say I'm going to go back and rediscover a lot of films. But I would have to say, if I had to choose right now, probably his last film, because it's just so heartfelt and emotional for so many reasons. The Shootist. Fair enough. Fair enough. Good choice. Can't fault it. The one I always watched with my dad was The Cowboys, where he has to oh, wrestle yes. up the schoolboys to do the drive. That Absolutely. Yeah, I, that got me. I loved that film. But we also well, watched The Lone Ranger all the time as well. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you. It, it, it's, it's interesting how what we are exposed to growing up and for folks that become artists down the road, you know, it, it's kind of like the uh, how everything is is started. The seeds are planted, so to speak. Totally. Well, I am so excited to learn about um, your new film, Glass House, and I uh, have a lot of uh, questions that uh, I'm looking forward to asking you. But let's start at the beginning because you are also the writer, and considering the scope of this movie, very creative storyline. First of all, but how did you come up with the story for this movie? I have to give a lot of credit to my co-writer, Emma Lingviswet devet We um, were brainstorming concepts together. We knew we wanted to pitch um, some grounded sci-fi concepts to, to show Max. And we were just hoping they might commission one so we could get paid to write while we were both um, working on packaging some other projects. And they ended up coming back to us the week before South Africa's first big, serious, longest lockdown and commissioning a slate of three, which was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me um, because it it meant that lockdown was a very special, creatively productive experience. And Emma and my producer, Greg Buckle, and our other um, wonderful writing partner on another project, Fred Stridham, they they were essentially my lockdown family. But in terms of uh, how Emma and I initially conceptualized Glasshouse, it, the idea started as a kernel of an idea. It was actually the simplest pitch on the page of a family in a glass house. And Emma, little did I know, she always had in her mind's eye, and then she showed me very early on, she grew up in the Eastern Cape, and she'd always wanted to take a project there because there's so much talent. Um, there's, there's, you know, the Eastern Cape is a wealth of resources, but it's often underutilized in, from a film industry perspective. And she wanted to bring a film there. And she knew from her childhood there that there was a Victorian glass house called Pearson Conservatory in St. George's Park in Coibera, which is um, previously known as Port Elizabeth. And she showed me pictures of this Victorian glass house, which was imported from the UK um, like 100 years ago. <laughs> and it's been <laughs> beautifully restored. And I, I was like, this is incredible. And she's like, I know, we've got to shoot here. And I'm like... I agree. And so we did that really naughty thing where you write a script for a location you don't know you can get. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, okay. Rolling the dice there. It's really (laughs) ill-advised. We were able to get it. Um, Also, thanks to Emma's legwork and uh, the 
Eastern Cape Tourism Board was were hugely supportive and wonderful partners. But I'm getting away from that myself. That was all a bit later. We had the concept done by then. Started out with this kernel of the this idea of this image of this intruder intruding on this family in the glass house. And what came out of it and the conversation that for me really formalized the the concept and solidified it is the the fact that Emma and I both have um both have loved ones who've had serious memory issues. She has a loved one who suffered from dementia, and I have a close loved one who suffered from severe short-term memory loss um, from lack of oxygen for a prolonged period. And we've both been sort of individually impacted in our lives by the repercussions of that and how it changes a person or affects a person and got us thinking about, you know, how central... Well, my heart goes out to you, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Um, but yeah, how central memory is to identity, to concept of self, um, to relationships, to the ability to maintain relationships or just, you know, function basically. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and how hard it is to be aware of losing that, um, because you can, you oftentimes are in this in-between stage where you are aware of what you have lost and, and what that must feel like and what that experience is like. So that was something that we knew we were interested in exploring, but the other layer on top of that and the conversation that we had around it was, and this is, you know, a, a parallel, um, a separate theme, but ended up, you'll ended up blending together is the idea that, you know, we have so many sayings and in, in Western culture, like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Or, you know, you go through all the shit. Can I swear? I'm sorry, Stephen. I swear a lot. You sure can help yourself. Okay. Like however, <laughs> however shit you go through, like just makes you tougher and it's admirable. And yes. you know, that's, that's, like, that's a load of shit, <laughs> you know, like, and, and yeah. I think that comes from like pre, pre the era when anyone really understood the impact of PTSD and, you know, the, the, the lifelong impact that can have and how trauma affects us, not us, not just psychologically, but physically and physiologically and how that's all intermingled. And, and in my experience with trauma, it doesn't make you better or stronger or tougher. It makes everything harder. It, and it certainly impacts how you engage in the world in future. You know, your past and your previous experiences and what you've encountered and how you've been treated shapes who you are and how you engage with the world. And I witnessed that, you know, over the years of just living and, and made this observation. And I think Emma and I were really interested in exploring two sisters or two different people, but you know, who have a close relationship, having fundamentally opposing coping mechanisms for trauma. On the one hand, wanting to hold and keep everything close and preserving every memory, because even if even if those memories are ugly ones, it's central to not repeating a mistake from the past. And at least it's something that's real that you can be like, this is what happened. I know what the truth is versus the opposing approach, which is this is actually too much for me to carry. I want to erase this past. I want to erase this part of myself and my lived experience so that I can be a happier person or a lighter person or a person who doesn't live in fear or hesitate or treat other people in a different way because of how I have been treated. And that was the, that was the sort of, I guess, conversation that from which Glasshouse was born. You know, when we do experience trauma in our lives, you, you are spot on about that. You know, collateral damage, you know, can remain even after the event has passed us by. And that does get overlooked at times. 
that uh, we're supposed to just pick ourselves up and pretend as if nothing happened. But not everybody can do that yeah. to the extent that others can. Yeah, and I think there's also like a, what's um, a considered like what's the appropriate time for grief or the appropriate time to mm-hmm. be really badly affected or impacted by something. And if you and everyone's very supportive and sympathetic for the appropriate time, whether they deem it to be a few days versus a few weeks versus a few months. But the second you drag on or, or extend past whatever that magic number is in the other person's mind or in the collective ethos mind of what's appropriate, then no longer is sympathy perceived. And that's, I, I don't know, I find that, I find that to be a really interesting thing too, because there's no calendar for this. And you know, any subject matter that um, entails memory loss or dementia, or even worse, you know, it, it, it is a heartbreaking scenario for anybody yeah. and for loved ones. Yeah. When I was listening to you, you know, how caregivers or people who care for that person, friends or family, you know, it, it, it is such a, it's a sad, sad thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's much sad in the world, Stephen. But there's much. Unfortunately, there is. Yeah, you, you ha- it's the balance. Thank God for that. And I tell you what, I try to wake up in the morning and and just feel as grateful as I can. And it's the little things yep. that tend to bring me huge joy. I'm just like um, that. It's the simplest, like like just sitting under a tree. I'll be like giddy with happiness that I have time to do that. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. I love taking walks and yeah. I love a cool breeze on my face and sunshine up there. I just love it. So I totally understand about that. And speaking with you today brought a smile to my face instantly while I was making my coffee this morning. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, after viewing your film, it's very interesting. One could describe this in many ways, and I've actually seen folks do that. Some are describing it as a a sci-fi film. Some are calling it futuristic. Uh, I think that there's also an element of a fairy tale-like quality. Is that true? Yeah, you nailed it, Stephen. I, I feel well, like we, when we finished writing the script, I, or I think maybe it wasn't when we finished, I think maybe we were halfway through or like two thirds of the way mm-hmm. through. I remember I was sitting on my balcony. Emma might correct me in terms of timeline, but at some point between like halfway through the film and having just finished the script, sitting on my balcony on Zoom with her in lockdown. And I was like, oh my God, Emma, we've written a fairy tale. And she's like, I know. <laughs> You know, and, and that was a cool moment because I, I love fairy tales, but we weren't necessarily aware that that's what we were doing, even though it's so obvious now. So we, we, we well, the, the yeah. costumes yeah. back that up too. Yeah. You know what? The, the costumes are wonderful. Thank you. And the production design is very high quality, very high quality. Um, one thing that I really enjoyed about your approach as a director is. I felt like you were just like, I love tight shots. I'm just a guy that likes it. And you seem to set things up so nicely. And when I say tight shots, I don't mean that the actors are stiff. I just mean you have some visionary elements that I notice. I liked how you set it up. And it helped with the pace of the film as well. I liked that I felt like I wasn't being rushed while I was watching your movie. I'm so glad you say that because I think filmmakers, especially in this day and age with like content overload and being bombarded by trillions of platforms and that pressure to compete and stick out. I think everyone's um, really pressured to like push, push, push and rush, rush, rush to like get the, as fast and exciting pacing as you can. And, you know, that's important. 
good pacing is crucial. Um, but at the same time, I do think it's, you know, it's good to make space for certain things and not every film needs to be bam, bam, bam all the time. And I'm, I'm, we actually worked really, really hard in the edit to achieve the right pacing uh, that, that let moments breathe while still moving very swiftly along. Cause it's not a long film, um, which we did intentionally. It could have been much longer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad that it, I'm really glad it worked for you. And, and going back to the, the production design and the costume design, I mean, I have to do a huge shout out to all my HODs and Carrie Van Lillenfeld who did the production design and Catherine McIntosh who did the costume design. Um, I brought them a very comprehensive uh, creative treatment. I just pull a lot of images um, and they realized it beyond my wildest hopes, particularly challenging on the budget that we were on. Um, and yeah, I'm thrilled with what, what, with what they, they achieved and we were able to do there. Um, the, and that imagery was really, really important to me. Um, and I, and I will also say that that was like, it was, there was no question in my mind, even when we were writing the script that the girls needed to be dressed in this way, it was practical and functional as well as just visual. I mean, if I was in a hot human glass house with family with no thought to taboo or what was it considered inappropriate, I'd be in the most loose fitting casual thing imaginable. Um, but, uh, but, but also I find that visual imagery, it, I like that it goes against the sort of cliche of what dystopia looks like, but I also thought it, it suited the themes really well as sort of, you know, and in, in a lot of ways, this film has ended up being an allegory for colonialism and you did the, the family, when we meet them, they're very much, uh, presenting an idyllic facade, but what's the price of that? Right. What's the price of that sanctuary um, and the, the safety and security that they have as a family? You know, the illusion or the illusion thereof. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of blood there. There's rot coming up underneath. And I think visually we wanted to um, subvert in that way. Well, I can't wait to ask you about the opening shot because I was very impressed with how uh, the film was set up, you know, as soon as uh, the opening credits disperse uh, regarding like production studios and all that. And all of a sudden you have this really exhilarating shot to help set the tone. I, I thought, though, to elaborate on what you just shared with me, I'm just wondering, because you would know of all peoples, are these characters, at least in the beginning of the film, are these people actually happy or is this really just about survival? It's personality based, I think. Um, I gotcha. believe that B thinks she's ha believes she's happy. Um, mm -hmm. I think that Mother believes she's done as well as she can and is and takes pleasure from her successes with um, with her children. I'm not going to go into more detail there because it'll be a spoiler. But in terms of you know maintaining a, a family unit that is that that functions for the most part, um, yes, for the most part you know, until it gets disrupted, but you know, happens. Um, and, and I think, um, Daisy doesn't know any different. I think Gabe probably is the one who experiences the most strife and Evie because she carries what she does, um, and doesn't turn away from it like B does. So, you know, the, 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 the cost of Evie's shouldering the responsibility is that it wears heavily on her, whereas B and shirking it and, deciding to walk away from the past um, or, or, or deny certain elements of the past for herself. That is what that for her is her way of allowing happiness. 
I don't think she would be able to be happy if she hadn't done that. So could could that be seen as selfish? Certainly. Um, but it is the choice she makes, I think, to pursue happiness at least. And I was very touched by the character of Daisy's um, realization that she hasn't really been exposed to actual animals mm. and that childlike right. wonder. Yeah. And I have to tell you, Kelsey, that there were some moments where all of a sudden it did seem like, oh, this is what could have been if it wasn't for these darn circumstances. Yeah. Where suddenly you see a laugh from the mother. Like, uh, or, or they're starting to talk about something besides procedures and, and how we do things. And I really noticed those, those brief moments, but they, they made an impact on me. Mm, I'm really glad. Yeah. Like getting all that balance, right. Because it's still, it, it's very much their normal. Right. And, and there's so many things completely abnormal about the way they're living. Um, but you know, it's a homestead. It's functioning. That's yeah. for sure. I mean, the mother, the mother has things going in a very uh, organized fashion. Now that opening shot. Yeah. Um, what's the story behind that? Because I really thought it was neat. I have to give so much credit to Greg Buckle there, um, our brilliant producer. Uh, so we, so to me, I'll be completely honest. Originally in the script, I had the film starting on a rifle shot of, of the rifle shot of, of the. Um, interloper and ooh, these are spoilers, aren't they? Hmm. You might have to bleep some of this out. I had the gotcha. phone starting. So let's put it this way. I had that shot existed, but it existed about 30 seconds later in the film. So it wasn't mm. the first, it wasn't the entry gate into the film. It was, it was sort of a reveal after seeing the initial beat of introducing the sisters doing what they were doing. And in in the editorial process, we were we really wanted to clarify and make it as clear as possible that the world as we know it is not is different right off the bat, bat right out of, out of the gate. And it was Greg who was like, "We need to do it this drone shot, and it needs to be and and this drone shot needs to." And I orig- I think I re- originally had it um, because I had it after that beat. I had it starting low over the glass house, and then. Um, flying vertically upwards into the sky to make more of a bird's eye view reveal. Um, and, and we decided over like looking at, looking at how both worked and, and with Greg's um, um, very, very wise insights to actually start the film with this reveal to set up right out of the gate that this was a different world. Um, and, and I think, I mean, we've gotten wonderful feedback on that and that shot and the shot was beautifully done. Um, we had a, a, a really wonderful VFX company called Motif um, do that, do our VFX for the film. They did an incredible job. And yeah, I'm also very happy with it. It, has, it creates, especially with the haunting music we have that Eve, the actress who plays Evie, Anya, actually created and sung and performed that, that lullaby. And I think it works really, really well. Very happy with it. I have to tell you, I was just totally impressed with the cast. Uh, the performances are not only outstanding, they are solid. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to sit down and get lost, not only in your very intriguing storyline, Kelsey, but also the performance from this cast. I was just like, you know, I just want to keep seeing these people perform because they are doing such a sensational job. How did that all come together to get so many talented people for your project? I love my cast so much. 
Um, <laughs> they were in, in that they were just, you know, so perfect for the, for, for the characters. Each one really challenged the, or channeled the role from the get go. Um, so we, we actually did the casting ourselves because we didn't have the budget for a casting director. And it was quite, uh, we did have some help, um, thankfully, which we needed, but, but, but overall it was Emma and I, um, receiving a ton of self tapes. And we kind of, uh, we had decided early on that cause, cause you know, this was 2020 and everyone had just been at home, locked away, not working. So pretty much every actor in, in the country had been sitting at home out of work. So we felt we, we didn't want to, we were, let's just say it this way. We, we have good relationships with all the agents. We know all the, all the, you know, most experienced reputable agents in the country. We know a lot of the cast and the talents out there. We, it would have been very easy for us to just go direct to certain people. And we sort of made a commitment to ourselves to do it the long way and the hard way and do a huge, wide, massive brief to everywhere. Um, so we had tapes, we ended up getting hundreds of tapes. I think we had over 120 tapes each for B and EV and, you know, very, very close to similar numbers for the others. It was, it was, um, it was days of watching tapes uh, <laughs> that Emma and I did. And it ended up actually being not only an incredible, um, experience and just being like, wow, we have so much, I mean, this country is just so talented, but it, cause it ended up being heartbreaking cause you wanted to be able to cast so many more people than you actually had parts for. But what it also meant is because there was such a diverse selection of tapes that when we got the tapes from our cast, who we ended up confirming, it was like, they were so spot on. They, they, they I, I'm not kidding when I say they channeled, like they were like Anya was Evie from her first self tape, real tears, totally there, resonated with her so strongly. Same with um, Jess um, with her tape for B and getting that sort of butterfly quality, we always called it, like her mind flits about. And, and from the very first tape, she encapsulated that to a degree that was chilling. You know, it was just, just what Emma and I had envisioned. And, you know, the whole cast, I mean, Adrian Pierce is such a force. She comes from a hugely impressive theater background in addition to all of her screen experience and shows in every choice she makes in her physicality and her vocal control. What I mean, she's tiny um, and she and, and her screen presence is massive because of all that incredible training. And, um, you know, uh, Kitty, who plays Daisy, just just raw talent, but also craft because of her theater background. And same with Hilton. I mean, just just all these. Um, yeah, just really, really talented performers. But. But talent is not enough. And what I will say to them, as a credit to them all, they brought the work. They worked really, really hard. Gabe, I, mm-hmm. shout out to everyone. Like Brent, like Brent is a prodigy. He's an empath. Brent Vermeulen, who plays Gabe, like we were very worried about playing about that part. It was a very challenging role and how we brought it to life. We sometimes had crew watching the monitor, you know, sort of tucked behind, behind me and people would cry watching his performances, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in real life, just because it was so powerful or the way he would respond in the moment was always so honest and so sincere. Um, yeah, they, they're just a beautiful group of people, of humans. I back you up on all of that. And, you know, when I was watching your film, like you said, it's not just enough to be 
extra talented. It's how much effort and dedication you put oh, into yeah. creating a character. And they all did. This Your film is actually a, a perfect example of if you want to go, hey, what's it like when an actor transforms themselves completely into character? Your film could qualify for that because that's what mesmerized me with their performances. As I, I was forgetting about them, the actors, and I was just thinking about them, the characters. Good, good. But yeah, no, they so, were so very well hard. done. They you you have an eye for casting. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I'll slip a list to you of all of the current A-listers who I saw coming up over the years and knew they were going to be huge and tried to cast and couldn't get and then missed them and then they were too big and yeah, I do oh, I, wow. I do like spotting them. But um, it's uh, it yeah, it's it's very rare to be so lucky to 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 truly be able to say like you've cast a film perfectly. You know, that's not an easy, oftentimes it's yes. just not possible for all sorts of logistical or very boring other reasons. And um, <laughs> I think this film was, we, we got really lucky. Well, congratulations. It's been so nice uh, speaking with you. I also personally enjoy, um, you know, cheering on female f- filmmakers and, and actors and artists. That's something that uh, I'm very proud of supporting women in film and and I'm looking forward to your future projects very very much and also discovering anything you may have done in the past do you have anything on the horizon that you're able to talk about or is that just not possible at the moment no I can talk about something um okay sure I talked you into it <laughs> <laughs> uh, well we uh I'm, okay so Glasshouse was a, a a massive gift for me because um i I have a script that I wrote nine years ago um, called The Fix, and I've been trying to get that film made for, like, years to the point that, like, it was getting awkward. Like, people were like, yeah, sure, you're going to make that movie. Sure, you're going to be a director. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Oh, you're still trying that one, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and then in 2019, um, we thought we were we were financed and we were good to go and we had our cast and everything was great. And then at the last minute, a piece of the financing um, – it actually was really, really, really sad. Um, we had a, it was a new film fund, and they were all great, and their backer just pulled out out of, out of oh. contract um, at the very last minute. So we lost that chunk of financing. So I entered twenty twenty in a very dystopian place, and then you know Emma and I, Emma actually had a creepily similar, eerily similar experience. She'd had a show in production that then um, ended up not getting broadcast for a number of of reasons. And so she, she was also, you know, in a, in a space of like, you know, when are we actually going to get something we, that, that we really, really care about made. And we, you know, picked ourselves up and pitched these concepts together and Shomex gave us a, it was a massive gift to be able to spend lockdown um, in development and, and writing and then go into production so quickly. You know, when I'd had a project, another project that I've been trying to make for nine years. So Moral of the story of what I'm trying to get to, not a moral, but the, the conclusion, forgive me, that I, I got a bit long-winded there. I'm not a lot, not on a lot of sleep at the moment. Oh, um, you are more yeah. than fine. I enjoy your answers very Thank much. Thank you, yeah. So, storyteller, story. Um, but uh, the point is that that film that I've been trying to get made for nine years has finally been made. And I've spent the entire year in post-production. So I'm dialing in from our ADR studio in Cape Town, um, I've had um, back-to-back ADR since, well, since last week, but the last two days have been a bit crazy because it's been nine. You've been working hard, yeah, I know. It's been 9 a.m. to like 5 or 6 p.m. in Cape Town, and then I'll dial into L.A. and do a 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. day in L.A. It's been like that last two days in a row, so I just haven't slept. 
And here you are in Hollywood and beyond, and I just want to say how much uh, I am grateful for that. So thank you. Of course. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just, I love this movie, and I get, I'm really happy that it's, you know, if it can provoke conversation or engagement or, or thought in any way, um, you know, that's, that's all you can hope for. Well, I certainly hope you will come back again someday. Is it too soon to send another invitation in advance? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can. I know that. Well, consider this an advance invitation. And you, if you get that project going or any project, I would love to learn more about it. And I think you're a very talented filmmaker. And um, it's just been so much fun speaking with you. Now, if someone is listening out there, what is the best way for them to view Glass House? Ooh, okay. Well, I believe it's on digitals. So I'm assuming that means demand somewhere. Yeah, I have a list. Oh. <laughs> I have a list somewhere. Awesome. Um, it's just it, it's it's a problem with being an expat because I my ah. memory is like I'm just out of touch with all of <laughs> the bouquets of potential viewing options in the U.S. You it, have a lot going yeah, on. Yeah, and, and, and I know I just know it's like it's like everything. It's everywhere. Um, so for TLOD, it's all major cable and satellite providers. So in demand, Comcast, Cox, Spectrum, Uverse, Ubiquity, Directv, Dish, etc. No, and di- digital there providers, iTunes, Amazon Prime, Google Play, Voodoo, Xbox, etc. This is literally the email that I got. Wow, you you've got it down. <laughs> and then all these Avos, <laughs> and then I haven't found. I actually haven't been told about the others yet. I, it just keeps getting the list okay. keeps getting longer. But I, I'll be honest, I'm not really. I'm, I'm I don't really. I don't know. It's a terrible thing to say. Well, <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, helping spread the word. Thank you. Uh, out there. And um, I have to say, if anybody wants to learn more about you, you have a very informative and enjoyable website um, that people can visit. And I have to tell you, you have a lot of photos on there. These are like, I think they were under maybe behind the scenes or whatnot, but some of them didn't even look like they were a part of a film. Like, I think it was you looking out at the ocean was just this nice photo. It was so beautiful. And then there's some, uh, I, I would assume some of the local folks who live near you and uh, wonderful pictures. I'm really looking forward to going back and going through more. Thank you. No. Yeah. I think that's the problem with that. The, I, you know, I did my website a couple of years ago and I love it. My friend, Sam DeMillo did it. She's amazing. And not even a website designer. She's, you know, she's so talented. She can do anything, but, um, but she did me a favor and helped me with it. And it's sort of like one of those awkward things where you're like, I don't like, I, I, I want to do the photography. I am a director, but I also do these other things. And, you know, do you need to be prescriptive mm-hmm. or like only have a website for one thing? So I guess I'm sort of yes. sharing like, well, this is me. I do these things. It is, it is more than one. <laughs> um, not necessarily all of them super well, but um, yeah, this is sort of an honest depiction of things I have done and, and images that, that grab me that I've taken and stuff like that. Well, I think you are amazing if that means anything. And I have my hands in lots of cookie jars too. So <laughs> I totally understand, uh, why that is appealing to you. I really do. Yeah, I- well, I did want to say before we go that I, all of a sudden, I don't know if this has happened to you, where all of a sudden you have like a delayed response to something someone asked you. I knew that the shootest, although such a sentimental and uh, extraordinary film, of course, I, I realized I kept overlooking something, and I, I just remembered. It's the Alamo with John Wayne. To me, such epic, 
old school classic Hollywood filmmaking. One of the rare films where he does not survive in, in the film. I think there was only two of those, yeah. but um, amazing production and that ending is just it just stirs the heart. So I had to throw that in, uh, in as a delayed reaction. I mean, all my reactions <laughs> to those kind of questions are delayed, and I think that's a that, uh, that's a beautiful payoff. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for being my special guest, and I'm going to be cheering you on down the road. Really appreciate the time, Stephen. Thank you. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham, delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Hollywood and Beyond podcast is produced, edited, and hosted by Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening.